Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 12th, 2018, the Farewell, My Blue-Eyed Monster edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of CBS This Morning is in New York City. Hello, John. Hello and good morning. And in New Haven is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Howdy, Emily. Hello to both of you. I can see Emily. I cannot see you, John, on on. Gchat and Emily looks about fifty-eight feet tall because of the camera angle. It's it's actually quite daunting. You can intimidate the hell out of me, Emily, even more than usual this week. I'm now I'm like making myself as it's, throwing it's, my arms out to make myself as scary as possible. I think possible. I'm gonna stand up and just make bear noises. Ah! Okay. On on this week's Gab Fest, <laughs> the raid on the office of Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer and fixer. Will it prompt the president to fire special counsel Mueller or somebody else, or will it throw the nation into chaos more than it already is? <laughs> I like the second tacked on part. I'll just throw the word chaos, chaos. out there because it must apply. It does. It does. It's all, it's all chaos. How would we even know anymore when we're in chaos I was... afresh as opposed to the chaos in which we're plopped down in. I was at a conference this weekend with a bunch of journalists and someone I think from the Washington Post said that he was starting to look up almost every day synonyms in the thesaurus for chaos and turmoil because he was tired of reading them in the his words own chaos. Then Paul Ryan is leaving Congress. Is the House Speaker quitting or is he dropping the mic because he's been so successful? Then Mark Zuckerberg, 14, Congress, zero. The Facebook boss comes to Washington and, in my view, successfully bamboozles the politicians. Will it still lead to regulation of Facebook, or is Facebook now totally off the hook? Or does Facebook want to be regulated? I don't know. Emily will tell us. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, of course, that we're just three weeks out from our first show in St. Louis. We are going to be at the Sheldon Concert Hall on Wednesday, May 2nd in St. Louis. There's still tickets at slate.com slash live. And we have a special guest joining us, Jason Kander, the Secretary of State, once upon a time Secretary of State of Missouri, the Senate candidate, the political activist, perhaps future presidential candidate, Jason Kander, will be joining us. And uh, it's going to be a really fun show. So get a ticket at slate.com slash live. So in the uh, ongoing telenovela of the Trump presidency, and the special uh, series telenovela of the Mueller investigation. This week's big twist was the sudden raid on the office and residence of Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, who is Donald Trump's Doberman, his bully, his would-be Roy Cohn. This search warrant was executed not by Mueller, but by the Southern District of New York prosecutors and and, uh, FBI officials who had been referred by Mueller to this. And but then acted on their own, apparently after Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein signed off on the search warrant. The Cohen raid has driven the president to a fury. He canceled a trip to South America. I mean, ostensibly to deal with Syria, but basically to deal with this. And it has prompted new reporting that he has considered again, considering firing Rosenstein and Mueller and doing who knows what else, doing other crazy things. So. Emily, let's start with you. Why is it a big deal to raid a personal lawyer's office? Why is it a big deal to raid any lawyer's office? Why is that an extraordinary act? Well, most communications between lawyers and their clients are covered by attorney-client privilege, which we've had a lot of discussion of this week. I'm happy that the nation is learning that attorney-client privilege is not absolute. It has exceptions. And one of the exceptions is if you are a lawyer and you are helping your client commit a crime and the government has probable cause to think that's what's going on, they can get a search warrant and take your computer and your phone and go 
rans- look, I shouldn't use the word ransack. Apparently, the agents were very polite. They can look at your communications. There are also rules after they receive the communications that we've also been hearing about where then a, a taint team from within the prosecutor's office goes through, takes out things that should still be covered by the attorney-client privilege. It's all very delicate. It's all very unusual. It's a tactic we associate with ongoing criminal enterprises like the mob. One kind of question here to think about, too, it's not clear how much Michael Cohen really acts as a lawyer for Donald Trump or whether he's really like a fixer, consigliere kind of figure. He's actually compared himself to um, the Robert Hagen or was it Tom Hagen character in The Godfather? And if that's the case and the government doesn't think he's really fulfilling legal duties, maybe that also contributed to the willingness to search this office. But this is a big, weird deal doesn't mean it was the wrong thing for the government to do. I feel like we don't know enough yet because we're getting this kind of drip drip in learning about what they were actually looking for. And I don't think the pieces add up yet. I don't think we know fully yet what they're investigating. You know, we didn't in my high school, we didn't have a taint team. It was always one of our greatest regrets. Here's you know, if you had, St. Albans would have beaten you. Yeah, that's probably true. That was true. a little bit like that was a little insider. You're really having to return to your yeah. Washington D.C. prep school um, yeah. competitions. Okay, boys. Right. Uh, right. Now, well, I, I would let the record state that it was not both sides. Don't practice false equivalence here. True. It was, you're right. Uh, Only it David, was David Plotz, Plotz who went so to St. Albans, who uh, mm-hmm. uh, such a competitive nature, he had to assert it. He, I was on the varsity. I was on the varsity. I was on the varsity taint team, John. You were probably only on the JV. <laughs> <laughs> um, he 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 taint letting it go um anyway here's the thing about the the the, the lawyer which which I, this seems to really strike at the at the very heart of the president's personal challenges what 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 happens when you're a fixer and by the way do you have to take a special test to be a fixer like when do you and what activity do you have to engage in to be a fixer usually it is you make problems go away not in the courtroom in fact you keep them out of the courtroom which means that by its very nature being a fixer means you are sometimes engaging in areas that are gray we have now seen from the public record that he is engaged with respect to the president's various dalliances as a private citizen. The area is quite gray indeed. It's not just paying off people to be quiet. It's it's bank shots where you have your friend at the um, National Enquirer buy a story in order to scotch the story. You create you 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 create and destroy companies willy nilly in order to create shells through which you can pay things. This is a uh, fellow, um, Cohen, who uh, is engaging in a lot of kind of outside the normal boundaries behavior. And he also has the sort of air of the untucked shirt tail, which is to say when Bob Mueller does something, whenever we see it, it is done with perfect punctuation. The grammar is airtight. It's belt and suspenders. And so over time, you get a sense that whatever he's doing, what you're not seeing is being done in the most methodical and meticulous way. Michael Cohen is is kind of a separate kind of character where you get the sense that there's a lot of things written on napkins and possibly receipts with um, important information that are tucked under the, the cushions of the couch. Uh, and 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 that there's if there was behavior going on outside of the normal boundaries of things, there might not have been all the necessary cleaning up afterwards that you would want if you were a client who was in who needed a lot of stuff hidden. And then finally, in order to have this no knock warrant of these three places with this kind of speed, it suggests to me and Emily, tell me on a legal basis here if I'm totally wrong. But that this wasn't just a fishing expedition or, or, or if it was a fishing expedition, it was the kind of fishing expedition that happens after you have two coolers full of fish and you go back to the jetty where you caught all those fish because you know there's going to be more fish to get. In other words, you had to have a, a lot of information that gave you the reason to, to uh, go into these three different places and look for all of this stuff outside of the normal context of the Russia investigation. And you have to convince a judge that you need to do all of that quickly without a subpoena, even though you have a witness slash subject slash whatever Michael Cohen is who claims to be cooperating. Can, right. Can I ask a kind of step back question about this, which is it is clear Donald Trump is a is a just a sleazy person, a, a immoral, disgusting, you know, p- grotesque personal behavior, 
uh, a, a narcissist, impulsive, an atrocious president. All of these things we can, uh, you know, I certainly am happy to to uh, put on the record. I don't know that I am super hugely comfortable with where this investigation is stretching. I want to know as a citizen, I want to know the nature of Russian and other foreign interference in the election. I want to know whether the tr- Trump or the Trump team, you know, cooperated with a foreign government. I want to know whether Trump, um, it, because of personal financial ties, is is uh, compromised by his Russia relationship and p- potentially being blackmailed. But the general sort of s- kind of campaign sleaziness and personal sleaziness of of the Stormy Daniels, of the McDougal, of maybe this doorman that that of the the kind of the bullying of people, the paying off of people to cover up his own personal peccadilloes and horrible behavior. I just don't, I'm just not sure. I think I kind of agree with the the people who say this doesn't belong in the same investigation. Well, maybe. But you don't have the evidence to, you I, don't have the evidence to know whether to make that claim or you, not. Yeah. I mean, that's true. They have I probable that's true. cause. That's then. true. I don't. And I don't. also, it's possible that Bob Mueller also, and I, I don't think we know this, but the fact that it was the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office that conducted the raid and seems to have this part of the investigation suggests that Bob Mueller is trying to keep some distance from this. You know, I mean, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, David. On the other hand, if there is a pattern of hush money payments and connected who knows what, that were all in the run up to the election and they were all undisclosed and they benefited the candidate and that was part of the intent, then that seems like those are campaign finance violations and it doesn't seem like tiddlywinks to me. It sort of seems like tiddlywinks to me, or it sort of seems to me like more the election more or less litigated the question of is Donald Trump an unethical, grotesque, immoral human being that everyone kind of agreed to that. That was the that was the deal that was made. It was like yes, this dude is a is a sleazeball, and we don't care who he and, paid off and how much well, money he and I'm his lawyer saying, spent no, no, outside I'm not saying, of the bounds no, of campaign I'm not saying finance. That exactly, I'm not saying that exactly because hmm. of course at some point. You know, if you twist the election sufficiently and you're you're doing it enough, it becomes it becomes uh, material and really important. I'm just saying that that in comparison to what I perceive to be a genuine, like huge threat to the nation and to our election electoral process and and to the integrity of the country, this part seems seems slightly trivial. Well, it's tawdry, but I just I agree with John. We just don't know yet. Yeah, and you're using the. De- I mean, people who think all of those things about the president are choosing this moment of the investigation of Michael Cohen to celebrate it as affirmation of all those things that they think about the president. But they are not Mueller. Mueller is doing it for other reasons, and just because they're celebrating it for that reason doesn't really tell us anything about why Mueller's doing yeah. it. And why Mueller's sure. doing it presumably is is what got him, you know, the judge to sign off on it and so forth and so on. If in the end of the day it turns out it's just what you say, then I would agree. Yeah, I mean, I just I think like we we saw this happen. We saw a version of this and I'm not at all comparing them. Well, I am obviously comparing them. But we saw a version of this <laughs> with with Bill Clinton. And I thought it, I thought the investigation into Bill Clinton's sins and then the crimes he committed to cover up those sins uh, was a bad investigation at the time, even though his behavior was loathsome and appalling. And I, I, if, in fact, the investigation is basically these are Trump's sexual sins and here are the crimes he committed to prevent those sexual sins from being made known, I, I'm, I think I might feel the same way. Well, we're, we're more in John Edwards land. And there was actually a prosecution, not a conviction, but a prosecution in that case. I mean – I just feel like it, we have to reserve judgment. I keep thinking about how when I worry about overzealous prosecutors, what I worry about the most are situations that never, ever make the news. It's poor people in court, ordinary people who don't have um, the ability to pay anyone, much less – I mean, I guess holding out Michael Cohen is the kind of lawyer you would want to hire. Maybe that is a little weird. But they're not the president of the United States is the point. And the press isn't there scrutinizing every single move. So if there is like a spectrum of concern about overzealous prosecutors, this lands me on the other side, especially when you're in a situation where all these people – are part of the Trump administration. I mean, Mueller is a little bit separate from it, but not – he doesn't have the independence that Ken Starr had. And 
Rod Rosenstein had a lot of reasons not to sign off on this search warrant, right? right. Every incentive. He knew that Trump was going to get incredibly angry and talk about firing him. And because the incentives all line up toward protecting the president in a situation like this, I feel like we need to give these guys the benefit of the doubt, at least until we have enough evidence to know that something is awry here. All right. If you're a Slate Plus member, you get a bonus segment on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. And our Slate Plus bonus segment today, we're going to talk about a proposal in Washington, D.C. to lower the voting age to 16. Is it a good idea to have 16-year-olds voting for president? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member of Slate Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. House Speaker Paul Ryan, he of the toned body and the deep blue eyes, announced that he will not seek re-election. It leaves his Wisconsin district with a top Republican candidate who is literally a white nationalist anti-Semite. But we can set that aside for the moment. Ryan's departure has long been rumored. John, why did he decide to leave now? Well, I think we're still sort of unpacking all the reasons. Um, And there are multiple reasons, and they can all stand at the same time. The the reason he was talking about most forcefully in his interview with our own Gail King on CBS This Morning, he he doesn't want to be a weekend dad. He wants to be around his kids before they leave high school. I think it's also possible that the things that would keep you and let you stay, which would be working hand in glove with a wildly popular president who is committed to a very specific limited agenda, if that existed, he might very well stay. The things that Ryan ultimately believes in, free trade, uh, how to create unity in the country and particularly across uh, racial lines and how to address poverty. None of that is on the president's agenda, which is why the president, when he ran for office, attacked Paul Ryan repeatedly. And then finally, he was able to get tax reform passed. One way to keep that into perspective is that as he was resigning, saying tax cuts that he passed, not reform, because there wasn't very much reform in the bill, um, the tax cuts that he passed, that was a signature achievement of his career, On the very same day that was happening, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, who's also resigning, said that his vote in support of those same tax cuts was the worst vote of his career. That gap between the two of them on that very same day gives you a sense of um, how difficult the 2018 election is going to be. And I think that was the final piece. The Republicans are in really bad shape in the House. Fifty three some odd seats, uh, according to the Cook Political Report, are up. Um, very uh, volatile president. It was going to be a bad year, and being um, a minority le- leader was not something that would uh, would be very fun, especially if you're not being around home except on the weekends. So he had a job that was so unpleasant that he would rather spend his time around his teenage children. Like that has to be a really, really <laughs> unpleasant job. The, uh, so Emily, is is the story of Paul Ryan a tragedy? Here's someone who at least in his rhetoric, had grand ideas about uniting the country, about a reconciliation, about reforming taxes, about curbing entitlements, about um, changing the, you know, reducing the size of the federal government, about reforming immigration. And he did accomplish none of that. He was a, you know, practiced fiscal, fiscal, he at least was an 
rhetorical pre- uh, believer in fiscal conservatism, but will preside over an enormous ballooning of the federal deficit. Is this a tragedy? Is this somebody who came to Washington with grand ideas and has essentially failed at every single one, but at a very high level of power? I don't recognize the kind of main image I have of Paul Ryan in either of your descriptions. Um, I also feel like we can't lay at his feet all of those failures as if that was like his individual (laughs) defeat because there were a lot of um, things stacked against him and getting even his fellow Republicans to go for his ideas. I just want to add in here that you know, whatever rhetorical weight Ryan gave to unifying the country, he also stood by while this incredibly divisive president has said all kinds of racist and prejudiced things and alienated lots of groups. He did not take any kind of firm moral stand at a key moment. Now, maybe he was an impossible position, but um, I don't want to forget about that. And also some of his ideas about entitlement reform seem to be designed to take things away from middle class people and especially low income people in a quite harsh kind of Ayn Randian fashion. So, you know, the notion that he is some grand figure, I feel like, and other people have said this, that Ryan sort of got credit for trotting out wonky looking budget sheets as if he was a real believer in limited government for its own sake. But there's always been this incredibly harsh side of his plans. And for that reason, I just feel like I it's hard for me to weep at this moment. I wasn't proposing well, weeping. Nobody's... I was just asking is did go ahead, John, you go ahead. Well, I was just saying that what, what I think you've identified is t- Two questions. One, which is a potential moral failure, which is to say that if he had these feelings going all the way back to the campaign, and there has been reporting that when he was told by Reince Priebus, uh, this was in Politico, but there's also been other reporting that he was expecting Trump to lose and that he was going to give a speech about how the Republican Party had to resist and go in another direction than the, the Trump direction. And then when it turned out that Trump had won, that speech kind of got put into the drawer. That battle that dark night of the soul that's a a moral question right so what did you have to put on the shelf in order to get tax cuts and was that a big price relative to your own moral code whether it's about race gender national unity or whatever that's the moral piece you were talking about by standing by um and so that's something he's got to come to terms with and he also had to say you know he had to speak up on behalf of the president and and stand by him. There were times he certainly called him out, whether it was on the Muslim ban or um, Charlottesville, but there were also other times where he witnessed on behalf of the president's good heart on the question of of, um, various things. So that's the moral side. The other is, isn't it possible to have, maybe in in your view or other people's views, a wrongheaded approach, but one that is still motivated by the right intentions. It just chooses, you know, he has a view about the power of markets to help people who who need the most help, and he chooses to do it a different way, which is an intellectual, uh, possibly intellectual and ideological mistake in the way he thinks the world works. But that seems to me is different than the, these moral questions about, um, you know, what your duty is to stand up when somebody is doing something that is counter to what your, uh, what you know is counter to your beliefs. I feel like Paul Ryan somehow gets a pass. It's as if we take him at his word that, you know, yes, he really has the well-being of poor people at heart because he says so, even though his policy prescriptions are utterly at odds with all the evidence about how you would actually help people. And I don't see why I should take him at his word when all of his donors want what donors of Republicans want, which is not to help poor people. That is, I I don't believe that the kind of free market ideology that he claims has enough of empirical pillar at this point to be credible. And so the notion that he somehow stands apart from all of that, I just, I find it risible. I mean, this is a person who's raised an enormous amount of money for the Republican Party, which just gave a huge tax cut to very, very wealthy people at the expense of almost everyone else in a way that is, you know, creating mountains and mountains of debt, as we were just discussing. So I honestly just don't get it. It's like because he has those blue eyes and those charts, he well, um, well, isn't it, gets a pass. Uh, so anybody who's spent as much time talking to addicts and talking to people that are poor across the country as he has 
seems to me to if the if the question here is you're questioning purely his heart, then I think that, uh, you know, anybody who's spent as much time as he has with them isn't doing it because it, you know, uh, gives him six pack abs. Well, I think Emily's right that at some point, if the evidence, if the lived experience of the world is so at odds with what your heart is telling you, then you're you're doing a wrong towards the world. I my well, my he obviously doesn't think it's at all. Right. No, he doesn't think it, but he just thinks it's but, never he just thinks it's never been implemented and that and what a shame yeah. that it hasn't been because I, if it I, would then people would be helped. He may be totally wrong in that, but it seems to me that doesn't wrongness if we were all judged by our right. heart by the times we were wrong, we'd all be screwed. I also think that actually there so there are three to my mind there are three main pillars of Ryanism. One is what you're talking about Emily, which is this these attacks on entitlement programs and changing the way the federal government works in ways that I agree would be devastating. But a second pillar is a tax reform as opposed to tax cuts to changing the structure of the tax system to make it simpler and, and fairer. And the third is a relative tolerance on immigration. I mean, that's not a pillar, but something he definitely believes. And on those second and third ones, he totally lost. He likes, he, he was on the side that I think yeah. is the side of the angels and he just failed completely. And then when he lost, he didn't do he didn't turn on the people who had caused his defeat. He didn't do anything to show that his heart, as you say, John, was in that place in a way that was actually going to cost him anything or go beyond the sort of political situation he was in. He took a different deal. He decided to become the majority leader and you know, essentially be Trump's one of Trump's henchmen um, for the most part. And that record to me stands for more than the kind of notional I, ideas about what he would have preferred. I, Emily, I, can't, I I think you're totally – that is a completely fair point. I, I, I'm not going to uh, – I think that's a really fair, devastating attack on him. I would say as somebody who is – I'm an institutional person and somebody who believes in the power of institutions and believes in working within institutions and trying to – build within an institution. I think Ryan made a bet that he could build within the institution of the Republican Party and the Republicans in Congress. And he could use that to slowly by slowly, as my mother-in-law would say, accomplish the kinds of things that he wanted to accomplish. And the tragedy, when I think of the tragedy of Paul Ryan, is that he made a bet on an institution and he totally failed. He was unable to change the institution. The institution was too chaotic. He faced a president who was too awful and, and too unreliable and a, and a caucus of Republicans who are so uncompromising that so that the, the tragedy is is that the institutions have failed. He's somebody in another era would have been a totally capable, reasonable deal making uh, House leader. And he just couldn't do it in this era. And that's and and probably nobody can ever do it. He'll be back. That's my prediction. Last word on this to whichever one of you wants to take it. Uh, it looks like the next Republican leader, who probably will not be the House Speaker, uh, or maybe I suppose could be the House Speaker, will be Kevin McCarthy, who's the current majority leader, possibly Steve Scalise, who is the much more conservative uh, House Republic Republican whip, who has a lot of, um, won a lot of sympathy and, and uh, goodwill from his his fellow members of Congress after he was wounded in the congressional baseball game shooting and has made such a great recovery from it. Uh, in either case, it's going to be a more conservative person than Ryan is. Do you, either of you see this, either of them being able to bring that House Republican caucus to heal better, to, to, to govern more effectively than Ryan has been able to? No. The challenge is that the speaker's not as powerful as the speaker used to be. Bingo. Uh, for a variety of reasons, um, death of earmarks, rise of the base, uh, improvisational unpredictability of the president. So it chewed up John Boehner. It's chewed up Ryan. It chewed up Gingrich. So, no, I think it'll be a rough road for that next speaker as well. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Facebook 
monarch Mark Zuckerberg deigned to appear on Capitol Hill this week. He spent two afternoons answering questions from senators and House members, and they, I would say they didn't really lay a glove on him. The House did somewhat better on Wednesday than the Senate did on Tuesday, but Zuckerberg apologized effectively for various data breaches. He ducked ably, made various promises to supply answers in the future, claiming he didn't have the necessary information at hand. And it seems clear that despite the general bipartisan sense that Facebook has been very, very naughty and is quite powerful, that it's unlikely to bear any huge consequence from this. That's my read on it. But Emily, you are a much deeper thinker about Facebook than I am. What's your read on how this two days of hearings went for Zuckerberg and for Facebook and for the country? Well, I thought the second day was more effective in terms of – I mean, I think everything you said was true. But when you listen to some of the tape, it's pretty unsatisfying if you're looking for answers. And I was struck by how the tough questions were coming from both sides of the aisle. You know, it's a big quandary. It's as if uh, we've all or many people, certainly Congress, has kind of woken up to this like giant – blow up elephant that does like 8 million things. And one of the representatives very effectively took Zuckerberg through the various functions. Like you enable people to send money to each other. So are you a banking company? Are you a media company? And, you know, Zuckerberg retreats to this idea that that Facebook is a technology company, but we all know that it has these very different functions. And then the representatives in the House were also grappling with this question of monopoly. Um uh, you know, what seemed to me to emerge was quite clear that Facebook is not complying with this 2011 consent decree from the FTC. Um, the FTC is looking like seriously defanged in all of this in a way that is not so good. And then there are questions, obviously, still about political ads, whether Congress could at least address, you know, political advertising and making sure that we know who is paying for it online. Now Facebook has changed its position and is in favor at least of that piece of legislation. But there is this big regulatory challenge here. And I felt like on the second day, we were starting to see members of Congress really grapple with that. And a lot of ideas are percolating around. So I'm not ready to give up on the idea that they could figure out how to regulate um, and I think even regulate effectively. I was unclear what the what Mark Zuckerberg was there to <laughs> yes. talk about. I Me don't too. I don't like understand. What, the regulations what was the point? Oh, I was hoping one of you was going to answer that. No, I, I hate these rituals. I mean, Zainab Tufeki, and I'm probably pronouncing her name wrong, who's um, an academic, wrote a piece saying that she thought that the questions, that they shouldn't ask any questions, that the whole ritual is useless, and that what we need to move on from is expecting Zuckerberg's apologies to mean anything to holding him accountable. Um, and she put some ideas forward about, you know, making sure that people are opting in in a very clear way to having their data shared, to have a kind of sunset so that when you agree to have your data shared, it's not out there forever. Various other ideas related to the kind of the privacy part of the problem, which I think is only like a piece of the problem with Facebook right now. What, what are the other pieces? Well, I mean... Other people have been asking whether we need to just ban target advertising, right? So, you know, what does Facebook sell? It's not selling our data. It's selling what it knows about us based on what it can glean from our data and the algorithms, the usefulness that comes from that. I don't is, – is it realistic to ban all target advertising? That seems like sort of taking us back into the past. But I don't know. Maybe that's not so crazy. And I continue to be really interested in the whole problem of hate speech. Um, Zuckerberg said at one point that – They've invested a lot in art of, in AI as a way of trying to deal with hate speech, but they're five or ten years away from being able to address it effectively. That made me go back to my reporting for my book on bullying in like 2010 when I was asking them about AI-related efforts at MIT that some folks there thought were really promising, and they were totally dismissing the whole idea of being able to deal with this. Well, you know, now Facebook has had to hire 20,000 people to try to police the site. So I think they're taking more seriously the notion that they have to figure out, or at least maybe there's some pressure to have them actually, like, engage with these issues. They don't know what the hate speech is. John, sorry, you were interrupted a minute ago. 
What I wonder is whether you could have, and this is the kind, this isn't, this is the kind of suggestion that the olds make, that the youngs snicker at. But so there are ingredients on boxes of cereal that tell you everything that's in it. It would be great if a site and/or apps had a uniform, very short description of all of your information that was being used, that was easy to get to, that was like the ingredients label, which is, you know, in the same place on every box of everything, where you knew precisely everything of yours that was being used either for the app itself or the website itself and or, depending on what other laws are passed, and or being used to and being sold to third parties. So that anytime you wanted to, it would be very easy to go check. That's a that's not at all a stupid idea, John. I know. I like that idea, too. Uh, can I... That's... It, maybe it it's because we're all old. Though. We're all old. Can I actually express a different opinion or ask you guys to to correct me? I don't really use Facebook very much, and God, I do not understand it. I tried to find out where the information about whether I had been compromised to Cambridge Analytica was. I couldn't even find it on my Facebook page. You're not alone. So there's that. <laughs> Is there something wrong with me that I am not bothered by the harvesting and sharing of my information and my browsing habits and the data about me? I don't I, – I want to be able to be hit with targeted advertising. I'd much rather be hit with targeted advertising than untargeted advertising. As a person who runs a small business, the ability to use the targeted marketing of Facebook and other platforms is incredibly valuable. It allows small – players to compete without huge budgets because you can reach people more specifically. Yeah, and it and, also allowed, you know, <laughs> Russian bots to plan all kinds of fake stories about Hillary Clinton and sex rings that is, to the people who are – that's the problem, right? I also don't have some personal feeling that the harvesting of my data is like even particularly interesting, much less like nefarious toward me. But that's because I – and I think this is true for you. Like you think about your, you know, lovely Atlas Obscura business. You're trying to make people's lives more d- joyful and full of discovery. You're not trying to manipulate them into doing – into sharing fake news or like, you know, bringing a gun into a pizza place because they heard some well, crazy rumor. Okay, I, there, there, I don't think we can separate these things. Well, I think I the, the kinds of data sharing that I really worry about. I do worry about, you know, health insurers – getting access to certain kinds of data about people and using that to make decisions to deny coverage or limit their coverage or or reveal private information to employers that that compromise people's lives that worries me like the and and probably facebook bleeds into that but that, that seems to me a separate thing the ability to sort of target in target groups of people with information that may be manipulative is like mildly troublesome and clearly you know it's not it's not always the best thing. But I think of that as advertising. I think of that as like a useful function in the world. And yes, the example of Russian bots manipulating people is bad, but that's not the only thing that is happening with targeted advertising. I feel like we don't understand yet, right? Because regular advertising is something we've all become essentially numb to. We're used to ignoring it. It hasn't destroyed, you know, society as we know it. And maybe that will prove to be true of targeted advertising as well. But right now at this moment, it feels like it's having a different kind of... Facebook targeted advertising is not destroying the country. Facebook targeted advertising was one piece in a, like an extremely divisive election, which helps Donald Trump get elected. But it, Facebook target advertising is not the reason Donald Trump is president. You know, it's not the it's not the full stop reason. It's some it's one small piece of a huge set of other issues, most of which have to do with the fact that we are an extremely divided nation. Right, but I mean it's not just the United States, right? Mm-hmm. There also are other elections and other questions about the rise of right-wing parties um and authoritarianism in other parts of the world that also seem influenced by the way in which people are using social media. And there is a chance that social media which was supposed to connect us and unify us, right? I mean, how many times does Zuckerberg say that to Congress is actually a force for division in a way that builds on exactly the trends that do concern you. I don't think we know the answers to that. I just feel more aware of being concerned and trying to think it all through. I want somebody to um, speak up for and and be consistent and uh, repetitive about the responsibility that users have to not be fooled into believing that there is a basement in a in a restaurant that has no basement in which there's pedophilia going on. I want people to be. Uh, I want somebody to shame all of us for 
the behavior that allows us to be so easily emotionally fooled. That I want that. A, B. I want smart people, lawyers, and or maybe members of the press to improve congressional hearings like this. Like, oh, it doesn't seem to me yes. that it would be that hard to do, which is to say, here are the key questions at issue about the past. So, A, why is the user agreement so bad at Facebook? B, is your business model inherently at tension with all of your apologies? The key here is you're trying to build a product that gets people addicted. And every time you do that, you're going to be open to messing with people and open to people creating apps on your platform that do bad things with that emotional connection and attention. Then there are a set of questions about possible legislation. I want somebody to not speak in these like absurd generalities like would regulation be good or bad? And then let's have somebody else weigh in about whether regulation will that's like saying, would food be good or bad? Yeah. You know, you have to get a little bit more specific before it's illuminating to anybody. Why couldn't that all be taken care of beforehand so that this would actually be useful? The answer, of course, is that everybody wants their moment. And the moment is not necessarily about illuminating the thing, but the moment is about asking your ponderous question in a way that's theatrically good so that it gets picked up on television. I totally well agree, said. John. Totally I agree. I myself with the gentleman in New York. Why don't they uh, – there, <laughs> there are sometimes hearings where there's a – the counsel asks the questions. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like investigative hearings, right? Yeah. But I don't know why that can't be in your run-of-the-mill hearing. It would be much better if one person or you know one person for each party is sort of designated. Okay, here here's the questions. I'm going to follow up. I'm going to not, not let them – jump away. I'm not going to let the time expire because they only have five minutes to ask a question. I mean, there were 44 senators who got to ask questions. I don't know if they all did. That's insane. You know, another thing, can we do this? Can we add, what would be nice is that because we have technological know-how now, you could put hashtags on articles and blog posts and whatever else that would allow you to, let's say it's three weeks before the hearing, anybody who wants to weigh in on this question tags whatever they write or think about, and then then really you're, then you Everybody does their independent thinking, and then somebody just has the job of curating it in a useful way that produces this, you know, short, uh, targeted piece of intelligence that could be used to make our lives better. John Eggerton has the the <laughs> nutritional information for websites. He's solved congressional hearings. He's hashtag things. It's awesome. Here's <laughs> what happens when you get up at four in the morning. <laughs> This is the best morning ever. This is going to be like the year that Einstein uh, thought up special relativity and whatever else he thought up. People are going to look back on this podcast segment and the world will have changed. I hope that as Mark Zuckerberg flies back to California, Congress recognize that there there is bipartisan support for – effective regulation and put some real muscle into figuring this out and passes something rather than frittering away this opportunity as I fear it will. Fritter, fritter. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are frittering, making apple fritters and having a uh, hot toddy to go with your apple fritters. No, it's spring. You're probably having a julep or something. I don't know. You don't have apple fritters in the spring anyway. You're having pea shoots. You're having a cocktail made of pea tendrils. Emily, what will you be chattering about? A judge um, in California on the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit named Stephen Reinhardt died last week. He was a judge I was extremely fond of personally. He was also just an amazing figure. There was really no one left on the bench like him. He was a liberal lion in the words of, I think, the New York Times obituary. You know, even though he was 87, it felt to a lot of people who knew him like this incredibly unexpected, super sad loss. I was a little bit heartened this week because his last opinion was published and it was about um, 
He, the holding in this opinion was that employers cannot merely cite past wages, prior salary, as their reason for paying women less than men. And so this last opinion from Judge Reinhardt begins with the sentences, the Equal Pay Act stands for a principle as simple as it is just. Men and women should receive equal pay for equal work regardless of sex. The question before us is also simple. Can an employer justify a wage differential between male and female employees by relying on prior salary? Based on text, history, and purpose of the Equal Pay Act, the answer is clear, no. (laughs) It's just a great swan song from this amazing judge who so many people, including me, will miss. John, what is your pea tendril cocktail chatter? This is a post on the great website XKCD, and it's a newspaper article that reads, the public events of the last three months are of the class which will go into its permanent history. We have been living in an atmosphere of history which will be immortally preserved. How accurately will future generations know the immense volume of grief and sorrow which has rolled over the land? Will those who come after us ever be able to understand the extent of our loss? Perhaps a careful reading of the daily papers of the present period may give some future antiquarian a fine idea of the feelings of the nation during the past summer, but these journals are so large, so full of detail, that we imagine the coming American will never find time to read the record. He must depend on a brief statement meagerly compiled by some dry and tedious historian. So that's from 1881. It struck me because, A... In 1881, they felt like things were happening too big and too fast and could never be. This is about around the time that Garfield gets. Garfield, we're always returning to Garfield. Um, Garfield is assassinated. And obviously the second the, the Civil War has happened not too in the distant future. But the, the way in which they felt like history was moving too fast could never be captured in one. And I wonder if that is true of today. Certainly everybody feels like history is blind. We are living in history in a way that we didn't during other eras that we've been alive for. And it's moving by in such a vast, fast rate. And we can't even remember all the things that have happened. And even when you look at all the people who have been fired or forced to resign from the White House and the sheer tonnage of bodies, it just kind of feels like the pace is hard to, um, that we are in the new pace. Anyway, but I wonder then, no, maybe that's not the case. Maybe in 15 years, this will actually all be quite simple. And whatever the outcome is, will sort of be like, well, you know, A led to B and that led to C, and it will be relatively relatively straightforward what happened. So um, I don't know. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about. That's dark. That was dark, man. That was unexpectedly dark for Dickersonian chatter. I thought you were, when you go to Garfield, it's usually, even even when they're digging around for the bullet in Garfield's body. It's usually, it's usually for jolly. <laughs> Kicks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. All right, my chatter. First of all, before I get to my chatter, I want to shout out another Slate Podcast live show. The wonderful Slow Burn Podcast is doing a live show in New York on April 19th. Leon Nafok will talk to Bob Woodward and Gail Sheehy and Virginia Heffernan. And that would be so awesome. That The Slow Burn Podcast is an absolutely brilliant podcast about Watergate. And the live show format will be delightful for it. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to that April 19th show in New York. My chatter is about a series I've been watching on Netflix with my dear wife, Hannah, called Wild Wild Country. You've probably heard of it. I don't know if either of you have started to watch this. Not yet. Should we? You should. No, I'm still cleaning up on Stranger Things. It's absolutely fantastic. It's a six-part documentary series about the Rajneesh, this uh, spiritual leader and his followers who took over a region of Oregon in the early 1980s. Oh, I know about this. Sorry. I'm going to explain why, but I'll let you speak first. And there's an incredible footage. Most of the key players are still alive and still talking. There's amazing contemporaneous documents from it that, that paint the history. And it's just, the story is absolutely bananas. We're only about halfway through. It's brilliantly edited and also fun and weird. So Wild Wild Country on Netflix. So is this the group that took over this part of Oregon and like, well, maybe you're not done yet, but it completely took over the local government? Yes. Okay. So it is because Don't give of anything that... away, but go ahead. 
It is because of that group and the concern that it caused in then-Senator Hatfield that we have a provision in the National Voter Registration Act that tells states to purge people from the rolls. The whole idea of like cleaning up voter registration and protecting the voter rolls from um, marauding foreigners essentially comes from that story and Senator Hatfield's reaction to it. That's really interesting. Maybe we'll get to that. The, the series is very exhaustive. Anyway, I really recommend it. It's It's got everything. Drama, compelling characters, weirdness galore. The Gapfest. I can either be the person that I am or the person that people recommend me to be. They're just there's I need an entire lifetime to do all the other things that have been recommended by you two. I was it's trying just to decide you two. which I would prefer, like the recommended version of you, but you just mean consumption wise, not actually. Yeah, yourself. consumption wise. I can't keep up with all the amazing things that you have recommended. I have them most of them when they're books, I have them sent to Washington and when I return home on the weekend, there's this Karen, like that you see on a hiking trail of all the books that you guys have read that I should be reading. We'll, one day it'll just like topple over in a slight <laughs> Topple breeze, over. Sadly. John and his life of quiet desperation felled by the books and now six-part series. That is our GabFest for today. The show is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher. The magnificent Izzy Road. Follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest or look to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash GabFest. Please come to our live show in St. Louis on May 2nd, slate.com slash live for tickets to that show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>